All right. Well, for those of you who uh, went away for spring break, hope you had a great time. Um, the weather here was amazing all week. Um, what a nightmare of a week this, was, this has been here. But it's good to have you all back. Um, and so we had a great celebration here last week with Easter. And, uh, and so we're excited uh, about moving forward in this season. Uh, and so as Scott already said in the prayer, and as we've kind of mentioned a few times over the last couple of months, we're going to be uh, um, kind of embarking in a look at uh, the book of James, which is, a, which is a great book. And so I'm excited to kind of go through this with us over the next uh, seven, eight weeks. Um, and so... Uh, We'll begin uh, this morning with James chapter 1. And so let's read the first 18 verses. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter... Being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes." It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let us pray. God, we gather this morning, a week after Easter, still remembering that you have been raised from the dead and our call to be a resurrection people. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in this time as we preach, as we proclaim the word, as we break bread and drink of the cup. That in all of these things, Lord, you might be forming us as your resurrected people. That we might then go out and share this good news with those we meet along the way. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength. 
and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, well, I am excited about this book of James. It's one of my favorite books, and it's one that I've always found to be uh, quite the challenge, but also kind of a, a, a riveting, if you will. Um, but the reality is that not everybody feels like that when it comes to James. There's actually quite a few people who really don't like this book at all. I had a Sunday school teacher when I was in college who, who would kind of go on and on about how he couldn't imagine why in the world this ever made it in the canon. Why in the world? this was ever allowed to be in the Bible. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther kind of famously called the book of James an epistle of straw. And he also had a great disdain for this book, thinking it focused far too much on works and not enough on grace. And so the reality is, while I like this book, there are many who don't. And perhaps after we've gotten through this, many of you all will think, well, we really don't like this book at all. And so we'll just have to kind of learn together what it is that bothers people so much about this particular book. One commentator has called it a gritty, in-your-face pastoral letter that is zipped up at some times with some heated rhetoric. And the reality, of course, is that the vast majority of us do not like to be confronted and do not like to have people get in our face about the things that we are doing or are not doing, whether that person is here right now or even 2,000 years ago. And so in many ways, James can be a real challenge. But before we kind of get into all of that, let's think for just a moment about who James is exactly. Who is it who is writing this book? And the reality is we don't know for sure. James doesn't say specifically who he is, and James was a fairly common uh, name back then. In fact, you know, two of the original disciples were named James. One was son of Zebedee, one was the son of Alphaeus, and so uh, it could be that one of those James actually penned this letter. Uh, The other James that's oftentimes brought up as a candidate for writing this is the brother, the younger brother, of Jesus. Uh, And that this is who most scholars think probably wrote this particular book. And James, the younger brother of Jesus, had a pretty big impact on the early church. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. Uh, You also see it in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Um, Scott McKnight has said that that James is someone who who is clearly very wise, who's theologically astute, And who played a kind of a critical role um, whenever there were all of these factions. Remember, factions in the church have always been around. And they were certainly around in the early church. And James was huge at trying to reconcile some of those factions. Uh, We don't know for sure who wrote it. It would have been nice if he would have included his last name, right? Like, this is James Christ. Um, That's just a Christian joke. Um, But... But he doesn't. But we're going to kind of go with the sense that this is James, the brother of Jesus, right? Someone who who looked at Jesus, not just as kind of his Lord and Messiah, but even as a younger brother would look at an older sibling. And, And James is writing this then to what he kind of calls the dispersion, if you will, of the 12 tribes. And again, as is much of James, there's questions about who exactly that is. Uh, by and large, more than likely, it is a group of, uh, of, G- of Jesus followers, probably more Jewish than Gentile at this time, um, who are kind of scattered throughout the known region. And what's important about that 
is to know that James is writing this letter to people who are already following Jesus. To people who have already received the love and the grace of Jesus. I think that's important. I think one of the things that critics oftentimes overlook is the fact that this isn't uh, like Martin Luther. This isn't kind of being written to people who don't yet know Jesus. This is being written to people who have already heard and received it. And what James is trying to do is to remind them that there is a response to the grace and the love of Jesus that you have received. There is an act of gratitude for how we are to then act and how we are to be shaped after we have received that love. James is not writing this letter to a curious seeker, if you will, if you're a curious seeker here today. James is not necessarily writing this letter for you. He is writing it to a church that is oftentimes, in James' opinion at least, fallen asleep. And that's a part of the reason why James will oftentimes speak very directly, very, uh, uh, very clearly, very harshly even at times. I love this, this quote. It seems appropriate from Flannery uh, O'Connor that says, To the hard of hearing you shout, and to the hard of seeing you draw large and startling figures. And I think that's exactly what James is trying to do throughout much of this book. For a church sometimes that doesn't see well and that may not hear well, James has decided that he is going to speak very loudly and he is going to draw very large and startling figures as a way of trying to wake the church up. But I also think that what James is trying to do is not just to wake up the church, but is to remind the church that if they are going to actually understand this faith, that the only way to do that is to actually practice it and to do something about it. This is something that we talk about because it is so critical, which is that we can't just be informed about our faith. We have to be formed by our faith. And I think that that is something that we talk about because it is massively important. Sometimes uh, there are questions around our home groups. Uh, and, and I understand the question, which is, why don't we do, we need to, we need to have them be more about the Bible. We need, we need more Bible uh, in, those, in those home groups. And I understand that. But here's what I want you to know. The actual point, by and large, of a home group is not necessarily for more information. It is for formation. Here's what I think. You may think I'm wrong, and that's fine. I think if Christians around the world actually, if they learn nothing else about Jesus and the faith, but just started actually doing what they already know, that they and the world would be changed dramatically. Let me say it again. If you learn nothing else about Jesus, but just started actually doing what you already know about Jesus, that you and the world, more than likely, would be dramatically changed. And that's why we talk about not just giving you more information, but about giving you formation. Now, it's not that it's not important information. It certainly is. The analogy that we use, because I think it's really helpful, is, is how you physically shape yourself um, and, and compared with how we spiritually shape ourselves. I think this is a great uh, analogy. So let's say this. 
if you are wanting to lose weight, if you are wanting to get in shape, right, information is great, right? Those menus now, and when you go out to eat and they tell you how many calories everything has, right, that is both wonderful news and it's horrible news, right? It's really kind of depressing, right? And so you look at those things and you're like, oh my goodness, really that, you know, the salad is 350 calories, you know, but the cheese covered with, or the fries covered with chili and cheese and sour cream, that's 1,700 calories. Who knew, right? But you have that information. Now here's the thing. This is, this is going to rock your world. If you sit there and eat those fries covered in chili and cheese and sour cream for 1,700 calories, it doesn't help that you simply know that you could have gotten a salad for only 350 calories. That will not change your body shape one iota just because you know what you could have eaten instead. The only thing that is going to change that is when you actually start to eat the salad. I told you, this is big stuff, right? That's the only way. And this is the same thing when it comes to our own spiritual lives, right? It is good and right. You need to be informed. You need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand the grace of God. You need to understand all of those things. But if you really want to begin to be shaped more and more like Jesus then you have to actually begin to practice that faith. You have to worship. You have to pray. You have to read the scripture. You have to forgive. You have to be hospitable. You have to love your neighbor and your enemy. Those are the things that will begin to shape you differently spiritually. Right? And ultimately what we want and what James is hopeful for is what Romans 8 talks about, which is that as we continue to do these things, we will be shaped more and more like Jesus. So that every day when we go to bed, we look more like Jesus when we go to bed than when we woke up. Now this is a very slow process, so you may not see a dramatic shift, right? It's kind of like my dad told me this. I don't know if this is true or not, but he said that when you work out, it usually takes about three months for you to see any difference, right? Which explains my body, because I think I usually go about two years, or it's about two months and about like 29 days, and then I stop, right? Uh, But That if you keep at this, if you keep at this spiritual formation, that you will begin to look less and less like you once did and more and more like Jesus. And that's the way for us to kind of understand what James is wanting to do. Now, one other thing I want you to know about James, which is that it's not the easiest to preach on because James kind of takes things in kind of a shotgun approach and he just is throwing out bullet point after bullet point after bullet point. And within five verses, he could talk about 25 different things, right? This is just kind of, he seems to be in a hurry, right? This guy, he's not, this, he's not flowery. This is no Hallmark card that he sent out to the other Christians. No, no, no. This is direct and to the point. And so that could be a challenge. So I just want to give you a warning, including today, that sometimes it can be hard to kind of keep up with it, right? But James is so passionate about wanting the church to wake up and to look more like Jesus and to have that be their goal, um, that he is going to give as much information as quickly as he possibly can. So let's look then at what James does. James, again, he does not beat around the bush. He, he starts where, and I wouldn't have started like this, quite frankly, but nobody asked me. James didn't ask me. Uh, He starts with saying, okay, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of any kind. 
right? Now, for 90% of the people who read that, they think, hey, this guy is crazy, right? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. That's ridiculous, right? It's almost like he wants us to live in this kind of make-believe world where we just kind of close our ears and in the midst of trials say, this is fun, this is fun, this is fun, this is fun, as if at some point it will start to become fun, right? And most of us who want to be honest realize that that is absolutely impossible. We do not, we will not, all of a sudden just begin to think, right, that these trials are joyful at all. So that's why it's important to think about two different things. One is, when James says the word consider, that is a word of faith. In other words, that's a word where we begin to think through, okay, so this is a faith way of looking at this particular trial. But even more, to begin to look to where he goes. He says, because trials will help to bring you uh, endurance, which will eventually bring maturity, which is another way of saying that you will begin to look more like Jesus. That what he's saying is what you have to do when it comes to the trial is not just look right at the trial, but you have to begin to reorient yourself so that you actually begin to look past the trial to the way in which the trial might very well shape you to look more and more like Jesus. Because trials, as you know, what they oftentimes do is they humble us. They remind us that we are not God. Uh, They force us to pray to God. They force us oftentimes to rely on one another. Um, All of these things we begin to do all of these things which ultimately could, in fact, make us shaped more like Jesus, right? So that what he's saying is, I want you to begin to look at this to expand your vision, to say that what's most important is not that I live a a pain-free or a struggle-free life, but if what I really want is to look more ultimately like Jesus, then this trial could actually be good in getting me there. Let's look at it like this. Last fall, um, as, as many of you know, we teamed up with Team World Vision, and so I ran the marathon. Um, and one of the things that I noticed as I was training for that particular marathon was this. I noticed that I am actually a much, I am able to run much further now than I could when I was in my teens and my 20s. And now, obviously, I am older, my muscles are older, my joints are much older, all of those things. So you wouldn't think this would be the case. But when I was younger, I ran cross-country in high school. One of the things that I always did when I ran and I started getting tired, I thought about just how tired I was. That's all I could think about, how tired I was. And then flip side of that, how good it would feel if I stopped. Right, And that is all that I could think about. And so I just wanted to stop. And, and, and I may have shared this before. I had a buddy of mine, and, and we had a friend uh, um, whose grandparents lived like nearby this typical run that we would do. And, and, and if you let your teammates get far enough ahead of you, you could veer off. And we would veer off, and we would go to our, our friend's grandmother's house, where she would always have water for us and some treats. And we would sit there, and we would eat a little bit, and we would drink a little bit. And if you did this, you know, they were doing all this actually running and then we could run like a half a block you know right after we've seen them go by and then they 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 had no idea neither did the coach right it was fantastic now here's the thing on race day everybody knew something wasn't quite right right because Jerry and his friend Brad they were always really far back 
right? Our bodies never matured, right? We never were able to do that. Why? Because we just wanted to stop because we were so tired and it was, uh, right? But what's happened, I don't know why this is, but what's happened now as I've gotten older is for some reason I am able to envision more in the midst of the run. I am able to envision more. You know what? If I finish this, I'm going to feel good the rest of the day. I'm going to feel that little bit of tiredness or soreness. I love that feeling. And I I have this picture. I'm going to be obviously much physically stronger than I was before. And it doesn't mean that in the midst of it, I'm not tired. Oh, I'm still really tired, right? It's still a real struggle. I really want to quit. But because of the fact that I am looking not just at that, but how am I able to mature, all of a sudden I am able to continue, and sometimes even, with a certain amount of joy. Because when you begin to think about how good it is going to feel and how much better you may look then than you do right now, the more joy that you will begin to have, right? It seems to me that this is very much what James is talking about when it comes to our own trials. It may seem strange to think, oh, how could we do that with joy? But what James is saying is stop focusing on living a pain-free life. That is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not for you to live this life with no struggle. It is for you to end this life looking much more like Jesus than you did when you began. And if you reorient yourself in that way, it makes a massive change. But that is difficult. Right? I notice this with my children. If you have children, you know this. Maybe teachers obviously see this. If you remember your own childhood, you remember. I mean, as we sit there and we watch our kids and they struggle with things. Right? They struggle with homework and they, or they don't do it sometimes. Or... They struggle with things out on the playground where they, you know, or maybe they feel like they're getting left behind or they're being left out. It's very hard as a parent. And as a parent, what do you want to do? You want to swoop in and you want to take them out of that. You don't want them to deal with that, right? But if you're a good parent, you know that that's the only way for them to mature and to grow is for them to go through those difficult times. That that is the way to go to maturity. If you keep them from that struggle, from that trial, then they will never grow, right? And so this is what James is saying. You have to do this. But what I love about James is that while he is very harsh at times and is very direct, he's also, he he understands, which is why he moves immediately from this sense of consider it pure joy to saying you need to ask. Basically what he's saying is you need to begin to pray if you struggle with that. Right, Because he knows that this is not going to be easy. That you have to pray at times if you want to reorient your life away from saying, I want to live pain-free, I want to have no struggles, to saying, I want to more than anything else to go to bed looking more like Jesus than when I woke up. It takes prayer. And so he says you have to pray for wisdom. Right, Luke Timothy Johnson, when he looks at this particular uh, um, line, he says this passage, he says, prayer is the essential conversion for one unable to perceive or calculate life's testings in the appropriate way. See, if you look at that, if you are unable to perceive or calculate, if all you can think about is how tired you are and you just want to quit, pray as a way of trying to begin to look at things in an appropriate way, in the way that the Lord wants you to look at that, right? This is exactly what James is saying. But now here's the other thing James then goes on to say, which is that... If you're going to pray for that, don't think that you can do so and just kind of dabble in prayer or dabble in the faith and the Lord is going to answer your prayer. Now he talks about doubting, which I think is a little concerning because I think that doubt is oftentimes a part of faith. 
right? In fact, in just a few minutes, when we sit down here for communion or stand down here for communion, I will say, as I oftentimes do, that even those who doubt, who are doubting, or whose trust may be wavering, can come to the table to be assured of God's grace and love in Jesus Christ. But but what James goes on to say, and I think what he means more by doubting is, don't be double-minded, Right? And what that means is don't sit there one moment and have your trailer hitched to God, and then all of a sudden there's something else over here. I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe I'm going to try that for a little while. But that's exactly what James is saying. You can't dabble in the faith. Uh, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he has a character called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Right? And that's exactly, that's a great image for what James is talking about. You cannot dabble in this thing called faith and expect to all of a sudden begin to see things differently and expect all of a sudden to start looking more like Jesus, right? It's not going to happen, right? So think about the analogy again, right? The analogy of, 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 of physically being shaped, right? What's the famous thing that people talk about? When you go up and you order a Big Mac and a large fry and a and a Diet Coke, right? You do that and you think that you are going to change physically because you got the Diet Coke, but you also got it with the Big Mac and the large fry, right? Or the person who goes in, I see this, I've said this before, you know, at, at LA Fitness, and, and you see him, you know, and he does like the curls, and then he talks for about 45 minutes to people, and he goes back and he does one more set, and he's like, whew, I am done, and he leaves, right? And that same person then looks in the mirror and is like, I don't, I do not understand. Why am I not seeing any change? There's a great reason, and James says, I love this about James. James says, what are you, quit wasting people's time, right? One of the things I thought about when it comes to James, I think James is a great Bible teacher. He's a great prophet, but he probably is not a great spouse, right? This is not the person you want to be married to, right? Because it can be kind of harsh, right? I mean, I can go up to Megan sometimes and be like, I don't know. I think I'm losing a little bit. What do you think? And she's like, oh, yeah, you really are. Uh-huh, sure. And you know you're not, right? But James says, no, I don't got time for that. I'm not your spouse. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You can't dabble in this. You're either committed to it or you're not. And I'm not going to tell you something that, that's going to just tickle your ears. I'm going to tell you the absolute truth, which is that if you want to look more like Jesus, you need to be all in. This is exactly what James is talking about. And then he moves on, right? Remember, this is James. Boom, boom, boom. And he starts to talk about people who are wealthy. And then he moves on, and he talks, I'm just kidding. So now, so now this is a pretty, this is going to be something that James, I want to warn you, this is going to be something that James talks about uh, uh, quite a bit in this book. But in this particular part of the passage, what's significant, I think, is that, first of all, there's a question as to whether or not the wealthy people he's talking about right here are actually followers of Jesus or not. Um, we'll get to this in just a sec. But, what we don't know that for sure, but what I, what, what, it doesn't matter to me that much, actually, because what is more significant to me is this verse right here, where James says, It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. And what I find significant about this particular passage is it's not even necessarily talking about money. It is talking about and it is questioning how busy of a life are you living in order to gain the wealth that you are trying to get. And I love, again, the way James is not kind of pulling any punches. He just says, look, 
You need to ask yourself, what are you sacrificing? Are you sacrificing your family? Are you sacrificing your friends? Are you sacrificing your spiritual life? Are you sacrificing all of your time and your energy? And if you do that, I want you to know you will wither away. You will be parched. And you should not be surprised. And this is where James, again, I think is great. Because one of the things that we hear, right? I mean, we hear and we say. And I say is, oh, just so busy. Just so busy. What's that? Yeah, I'll sign up for that. No problem. Right? And we do this again. Remember that James is not your spouse. So James will say to you, it's too much. And you should not be surprised if you don't go to bed looking any more like Jesus than you woke up. If the whole day you have created no space to actually engage with or to be with Jesus or to begin to act in a Christ-like way. There is no way that you can do that and continually be busy all of the time. If you have no sense of margin, if you create no space, then you should not be surprised if you do not keep looking more and more like Jesus. Jesus. So then James concludes. And apparently there were people there who were accusing God of of tempting them. And that's why they were failing. That they were failing because God kept tempting them and there was really nothing that they could do. Right? Which is this kind of beautiful reminder of the fact that the church and that people, they're really basically the same. Right? I mean, how many of us, for how much is it, is it a struggle for us to blame somebody else for our own failings, right? And, and it's innate. There is no question about it, right? When, with, with, with our children, my guess is very similar to your children or, or when you were a child. 90 to 95% of the time, when we say something like, hey, why did you hit your sister? Or why, why would you act like that? There's, it's not a four-letter word. It's a three-letter word that always begins their sentence. You know what that three-letter word is? She. She hit me first. She was asking for it. She was the one who kept bothering me. She, she, she. And if it's a brother, it's he, 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 whatever it is that you have, right? Now the sad news is we, as we mature, it's not that we do that any less. We just become, you know, we become a little bit more refined about it, right? Well, this is probably because of uh, my parents' upbringing. Um, or this is because of my past, or you know what, I mean, like this person, I mean, they just kept treating me poorly. There's really no, there's no question why I would have done something like that. All of those things, and the reality is sometimes those things may contribute, right? Like one of the sisters really may have hit you first, but if you begin everything with blaming somebody else, I want you to know you will never grow to be more like Jesus, Right? That you have to begin not with what someone else has done or with what God has done, but with yourself. And that is incredibly painful. That is incredibly difficult. But James says, no, no, look at your own desires. It starts with these small desires usually and then begins to grow. And the question that James says here is, are you cultivating things that will give you life, that will make you more like Jesus, or things that are ultimately cultivating death? And at the end of the day, the person responsible for that is you. See, in thinking about James, one of the things that has come to my mind is that the reason why 
James is oftentimes so uncomfortable is not because James is wrong, but it's because James is more right than most of us are able to actually admit. And it's for that reason that I am glad and excited to go through this with you all. I think it's best to to go through a difficult thing like James with one another. And it's another reason why I think home groups are so important because I want us to go through this together as a home group where we can really be, hopefully, as you're in your home group longer and longer, you are able to be more and more honest with one another. Now, don't be as honest as James, but, but, but try to be more honest with one another. And so one of the things that we're going to do, because we are more and more geared towards asking the question at ZPC, how can we be formed to look more like Jesus, is that during these seven weeks of home groups, what we're going to ask you all to do, and if you're not in a home group, you can certainly do this on your own, is we are going to ask you to engage in some kind of practice Right? How are you formed? As we said a couple of months ago, you're formed in, by repetition, you're formed in community, and you're formed when you are physically doing something. And so you'll see there, it'll be in your bulletin, so if you're not in a home group, you can certainly do it. But the practice for this week, we could have done several different ones, the practice for this week is this. I want you to calculate, to think about the ways to keep a diary about how you are spending your time. And I just want you to just write it down. It doesn't have to be like meticulous every 10 minutes. But I just want you to ask the question, how are you spending your time? And as you do that, at the end of each night, I'd love for you to just think through and to look over that and to say, okay, if I look at how I'm spending my time, in what way is this helping me to grow and to be shaped more like Jesus? And that doesn't mean that you have to say, okay, I need to be spending three hours in prayer. No, no, this can oftentimes happen in the midst of life. Right? When you decide to sacrifice something for somebody else, when you decide to forgive somebody, when you decide to to act in ways to love a neighbor, to be hospitable, whatever it may be, those are things that will continually shape you. Right? When you want to lose weight, what do most folks say you do? Begin to keep a, a diary of what you are eating. And what happens nine times out of ten when you look back and you say, wow, really? You know, it's amazing how quickly 7,000 calories adds up. I tell you what. And you don't pay attention to what you are eating. And this is what we want to do. If you feel like, you know what, I'm not being shaped more and more like Jesus, then to begin to take an assessment Right? Begin to take assessment this week to say, in what way are we actually spending our time? And is this helping me to be shaped more like Jesus or less? Because if you just know that this is true and you don't actually begin to examine it, then you have not changed one bit. And my hope and my prayer, sisters and brothers, is that at the end of this week, 